Joining me today on this week's episode of Cine Chill is Evan Marlowe, the horror film director, and his next project is a really impressive one. He's directing a horror film using puppets. But he's not only using puppets, he's enlisted some pretty impressive talent for this film. He's managed to get James Masters, Sid Hay, Jordan Peele, and Freddy Krueger, Robert Englund himself. So stop what you're doing, sit back and have a chill out and have a listen to this great filmmaker. Well, I did I did film as a high school. Of course, all our friends out here in Hollywood are actors. So uh, it was easy to put together a, a feature after, you know, about several months of just continuously writing as we went and shooting. And then eventually we finished the film called Blood Rush, pitched it to some companies and got it in um, distribution. And then just immediately after about three weeks of a break, we went into our second feature production without any pre. And um, that was Horror House. And then we got the same um, distributor put that out. So we have two features um, put out in distribution in the course of a year. And then we had a couple of kids and everything slows down once you have a couple of babies. So it was the T3I really that made you realize to get the results that you want to get is actually quite achievable to get the film look. I know when I had a video camera, it never would look like a film. It always looked like video. And then I remember seeing, I forget what website it was on, but there was examples of this uh, of this DSLR and I was just going crazy saying I need to get into this because the image just looks so steps ahead of, of what was achievable with a you know either um, a Canon uh, XH-A1 which was a workhorse of a camera it was like a big beast and um, but you know no matter what you did with it it always looked like video um, which makes me laugh when you see people in forums saying how can I make my DSLR footage look more filmic and you think thinking well you know you, you've the answers in your hands it's it's how you shoot with it it's how you light it it's not really down to um post you know um a lot of people just want like a um a plugin i suppose called film look and they click it and that's it that's all they have to do um whereas that's not quite the case yeah i think there's an evolution when you're a filmmaker at least when you're doing you know the, the that person that shoots and does their own dp and does their editing um they kind of have an appreciation for all aspects aspects of it and as a result their education on all aspects should mature and and they should be reading as they go along with the experience and you just kind of see that um, you can put a really bad camera in the hands of someone experienced and you get really good. I mean, we're not just talking about camera, of course, we have to have respect for the, the lenses also. Mm-hmm. But, the you know, a good person, a filmmaker knows which lenses to choose for that moment. They know the depth of focus. So everything is um, in knowledge. But then eventually you get to that point, like I did, we hit a plateau. You made two features with the, with the T3i and you're just like, I know I can make this look better. I'm doing the best I can. I've read a lot. I'm lighting it really hard. I've got, you know, a guy working over my shoulder that's worked on professional sets and he knows how to light it so i know we're doing the best we can with what we have i just feel like it's not quite good enough so then you say okay i've done the best i can with what i have now it's time to kind of advance to the next highest level higher level that you can afford and that's kind of what you should do you shouldn't just jump in with this really expensive camera with no understanding of how to use it and expect you're going to get this fantastic result because it just doesn't work that way what camera do you use currently um well after the t3 i went on to the 5d2 i think which i you know it was a better camera but it wasn't it wasn't blowing me away so i did a little research i got this old sony f3 i think it's a pwr f3 which is an old um I believe it's a camcorder right it's yeah. um 35 millimeter um, sensor. I, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a DP, so I don't know the specs. So I, I did a bunch of research enough to know that this camera was expensive when it came out many years ago. 
They've created upgrades, and as a result, the older version dropped price. So now you can find one of these that used to go for, I don't know, fifteen, eighteen thousand dollars out on their used for two to three thousand dollars. So you can get this really excellent camera that captures amazing footage for not much money if you're willing to buy a used camera and then invest in really good lenses. So I went to Zeiss and I got some really good primes, you know. So uh, they're not the top of the line Zeiss, they're just, you know, the one step below that are affordable. Um, but you know, and then if I need some extra lenses, I'll go and pay 35, 40 bucks for a weekend to rent a good lens. So I still managed to, to find a balance where, the, you know, the equipment's excellent. And um, if, if I'm missing something, I go rent it or I, I know somebody that can get it for me and we can fill in the gaps that way. And then for the stuff I'm doing now, I don't know how I've, you know, spent years trying to do post-production. I just don't know how to correctly grade and colorize. So I go out and if I can afford it, I'll find somebody to do that because that is basically adding a completely different dimension to the image when you have somebody that knows what they're doing coming in and grading and color correcting. So do you shoot the image as flat as you can get it then so then you can get someone in to do the grade? Yeah. The great thing about the camera, and then I go out to an Atomos um, Ninja Blade, I think it is. It it records in 422... Uh, it's 20 bit, eh, something like that. But it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good image out of the camera, better than it is internal. You get that image, you keep it really flat and, you know, it looks like junk and you're really disappointed when you watch all the dailies. It's just, it looks like garbage. And then you, um, you give it to someone who knows what they're doing and all of a sudden it sparkles and all these colors come out that you didn't even know were there and, and all the depths and, and you're really excited about the final footage. Um, so yeah, the, the goal is to just have faith in the camera is going to, you know, uh, record all the data that you need it to and then hand it off to somebody that is or learn how to do it yourself. I read books on this stuff and it's way over my head um, to color correct. It's, it's the same basically for audio. You know, when you get to, you know, really EQing and mixing and compressing, I just defer that stuff to, you know, audio technicians. It's the same for colorizing. I'm, I've spent years doing this stuff and dabbling it and reading on it myself, but you can tell there's a difference between someone that knows what they're doing and works in professional cinema and gives you that final sound or, or video image and versus, you know, kind of guy does it in, in his basement, you know, learning you know, on his own. So I, for that sort of stuff, for, for, you know, sweetening it up when it matters, I give it to somebody professional. The important thing from what you said there is it's good to have an understanding of, of all these jobs and about color grading and, and shooting flat. I bought a A7S probably a year or so ago and everybody was saying, oh, you got to shoot in S-log and it's all be flat. And I remember working on a promotional video filming flat and the client's like, can you play me back a clip when I played it back and he almost stopped the whole yeah. production because he said that looks terrible and I had to basically reassure him said no it only looks like that in the camera but when it's done it'll look you know amazing it's the same with the edit you know show somebody that before the final edit and the sound and the music and all that and they just watch this and they go that is just awful you have to do all this reshoot I, I do this you know my wife is uh, actually went to film school in the UK and uh, is a producer and an actress um, so even with her background when I show her my first rough cut she's really disappointed and i have to, and i'm crying you know i'm watching this footage sometimes and i'm crying because like, the performance is amazing and she's like it's just awful and, it, and wait wait no wait to get all the weird noises out you put the music in and i grade it and yeah. edit it properly just trust me on this so you know with clients or anybody really you have to you just kind of just say you know give them a caveat you know this probably doesn't look or sound very good um, yeah. but trust me this will eventually when i really fiddle with it regards to influences and movies that played a big part in 
your life besides Star Wars, which I think every filmmaker has the Star Wars story. You know, it's they saw Star Wars, it blew them away. They then they started to make little movies, and then the next thing they're making, you know, Rogue One. Yeah, it's the thing is with it. You know, I was standing in line behind somebody, uh, maybe in Target before the most recent Star Wars came out, and. They were in the kid had, you know, it was like a little six year old kid with all the Star Wars figures and stuff. And I'm thinking I had this when I was that age, some 40 years ago. And I couldn't think of anything that's permeated our culture like Star Wars has. And I just couldn't think of another movie or book or album. You know, I mean, the Beatles will come close. But even now, six year old kids listen to the Beatles. I think I think Star Wars is probably the, the, the one piece of art that has pervaded generations since, you know, I was a child to the current uh, generation of children. Yeah, I think Disney have given it its well-needed lease of new life. Yeah. I think if it had have been up to George Lucas and if he had ever wanted to make more movies, I think that potentially could have killed it because the prequels <laughs> almost did kind of kill it for a lot of people. Yeah, as much as you want to say that, the, and, it, and I would agree that the, the most recent Star Wars does have a lot of uh, essences of the prior Star Wars and, you know, the plot can be traced back. I still think the delivery of it and the energy and the fun and all of that stuff, the characters is all really fresh and um, it deserved all the accolades and the money that it made. Uh, I think it still was a real good reinvigoration of the series. Other than Star Wars then, what movies have influenced like your current style of film? Um, well, you know, I do mostly horror and I and I, and I love to move away from that. I do drama and I do a lot of comedy and uh, I just wrote a um, pilot that's a historical drama, um, even though it's got a little bit of horror worked in. So mostly my, my interest has been in horror but I'm definitely moving away, or have been moving away from that for a while. As far as horror, and this current feature I'm working on, um, Abruptio, is Sort of paying homage to 70s horror, Suspiria, um, Harry, you know, the, that whole style of um, Don't Look Back. Um, there's a bunch of uh, great horror films in the 70s that everybody should watch, even if you're not a horror fan, that are just artistically brilliant. And um, so I can think most recently that that's what inspired me. Um, but when it comes to horror, just about everything, I mean, I'm just a fan of just about everything in the genre because it's such a big, broad genre. It touches on all sorts of stuff, social commentary and, and everything else. So, um, but growing up, it wasn't horror, obviously. It was uh, probably the films, if I were to point to the films that really got me interested in making movies, it would be Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Clockwork Orange. Um, there was just a few, that, uh, The Graduate, that I would watch over and over again. I mean, I, right now, sitting here, don't remember Clockwork Orange very well, but I know I, I watched it at least 100 times yeah. when I was way too young to watch it at all. I don't know how I got a copy of it. Um, there was just there's certain movies that just, uh, just struck me and resonated and just shaped how I I approached life in general and then how I would make films. Um, I wouldn't say right now those are my favorite films, but those are definitely the ones that kind of were the springboard to get into filmmaking. You're working with some pretty big actors. Can you talk about who you're working with at the moment? Yeah, we have a website, abruptio.com, if anyone's interested. And uh, we started, I started writing this, I think, about two years or two and a half years ago. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to a talent agent who represents a lot of big people here in Hollywood um, on the phone once. And he said, you know, I prefer to have directors who can also write. It just makes it easier for me to pitch them 
Um, you know, when a director can bring their own projects and write their own scripts, I, it's a sort of an all-in-one package. So it makes it an easy sell. So he, he recommended go ahead and learn how to write um, scripts. So I started to, and you know, when you're starting to pick up screenwriting, it's really clumsy at first. You don't know what you're doing. You read other scripts, you try to emulate, and you go on forums, and nobody can agree on anything. And there's just so much, just so much dogma in the, in the screenwriting community that's just garbage. I mean, if I read a bunch of Oscar-nominated scripts, they all break the rules. Um, so. So I didn't know what to do. So I just started writing and writing. And um, with a lot of things, it just gets better and easier as you go. Um, so then I just, uh, my the way I write, and I also write novels and I've published novels, um, is to just sometimes you just start writing and figure out who your characters are as they go and let the characters kind of lead you into the story. And that's what happened with this current one. I just had um, a guy that uh, wakes up and he's got a bomb that's been implanted in his neck. So that just kind of came to me. And then I'm sort of like, all right, well, I don't really know what to do with this. And then he's sort of Skyping or talking to his buddy online. Um, and the buddy says, I have one too. It just sort of came out of the guy's mouth as I'm writing it. And then I just kind of went to bed and, I, and my wife was already asleep. And I, or I, I think I woke her up and I said, oh, now I get where the story's going because now everyone has a bomb in their neck. So now I have to figure out who put all these bombs in their necks. Um, so that this is the sort of thing how I approach stories. Sometimes you got it. The light bulb goes on. You just start writing it yeah. or producing but sometimes you just really don't know you kind of got a little seed but you don't really know where it's going so um you just kind of have to let put the put the characters in the room and let them talk to each other and see where the story goes and if you just open up your mind and listen to the characters and you understand the characters uh, the story kind of evolves from that um so that's just the premise so it you know it took about a year of writing and another year of rewriting and tightening it up and getting uh notes back from readers and that sort of thing um then along the way i kind of started pitching it out to actors and so originally we got James Marsters who played Spike on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. And, um, and then kind of it just once we got him in place, everything just kind of um, cascaded from there. We got Robert England, who uh, is Freddy Krueger. Um, Hannah Mae Lee was in Pitch Perfect. Jordan Peele, of course, was in Key and Peele. He's a really famous Emmy-winning Emmy Emmy um, comedian. And he's also working in horror now. He just directed and wrote a horror film, which I think is coming out through Blumhouse. Uh, Chris McDowell, who was in Happy Gilmore. Sid Haig, who's famous in... Um, uh, House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects. Um, and, uh, you know, so, and then on the production side, I have Savage and Spies. Savage and Spies did the uh, music to the original Human Centipede. Oh, cool. Um, I have, yeah, I have, um, uh, an Emmy winning, um, sound designer, Brian Bowen. I have Mark Todd Osborne, who did the color for It Follows, which was a really popular horror film like a year ago that or so. terrified me, that movie. I, uh, I, di I didn't get to the end. I actually turned off halfway through and it wasn't anything in particular about it there wasn't a scene but there was mm. something in that movie that creeped the <laughs> hell out of me and i thought i can't watch this so yeah it's a, you know what i think it might be is that um what he and i because i read about this and he took a lot of inspiration from paris texas the old 80s film i think it was and he, they used you know he sort of went with the same aesthetics but basically what he was trying to do with that film aesthetically was open up the screen so that you're watching an image and you never know if there's going to be some character in the background will slowly turn and start walking towards you because that's the premise of the movie. You know, somebody somewhere is going to turn around and start chasing the main character. So you're constantly trying to focus on the main character, but at all times there's people in the background and in your subconscious, you think, is that person going to turn around and start attacking the main character? And it's never, nothing,
nothing in this movie is at all obvious. It's all kind of slow and it gets under your skin. And I think that's a big part of it because he, he widens the screen and makes you diffuse your concentration. And there's always this ongoing uh, paranoia that something's going to come out of the background. And I think that kind of just seeps in and it really freaks you out as you're watching me. I so, think that might be part of it. So is it intimidating working with all these greats? No, I, you know, I thought I would be, but, you know, I show up. And it helps that all these people we've worked with have been incredible people like uh, Robert England got there a full hour early, completely prepared, read the script, had ideas on his character and other characters and his lines and his delivery. I mean, I've never met an actor who had done that much homework um, coming to, to set. But everybody who we worked with was incredibly gracious and hardworking. And so it really made it easy. So we just, you know, even if you were intimidated by them, they were just so open and friendly that it was hard to kind of be shy around them. Um, but yeah, I mean, when like if I were to be in a coffee shop and I saw somebody that I really admired, like Spielberg, I don't think I'd ever walk. Even though Spielberg is like one of my top idols or Tarantino, I would never walk over to that person introduce myself and say hi and i really like your films i just would be too intimidated because of the amount of you know just the, the respect i have for them um but but if you <laughs> if you put me on set with them no problem if i had to actually work with them that would, would not be a problem for me. i just go ahead and do it he would be someone i would love to meet because he's the one who has this consistency of just you know brilliance his films are so enjoyable and they've got so much going on with them and they're made so well and you know mm-hmm. to me that's what movies are um, are all about um and i you know i imagine he's the most like uh gracious kind guy you could meet if i saw him and i didn't say anything i, yeah, I would just be like i've just lost myself ch- yeah exactly yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it'd be hard i was actually at a q a with tarantino once when he was in la and even at the, the you know the meet and greet afterwards i still couldn't go up to him he was surrounded by people i probably couldn't get to him but you know even if he was just sitting there i would i would probably be just so intimidated because of the the body and depth of his work it would just be like what do you even say to him like oh i really like pulp fiction i mean it's just you know some people i just would if, if i if i had to interview him or work with him i think it'd be a problem i just wouldn't be a problem i put on that hat do it but to actually just walk up to someone and start socializing with someone that you have that amount of respect for would be really kind of difficult i think it's awesome that you know these actors that you're working with are so easy to work with and that should give a lot of sort of faith to the filmmaking community because <laughs> there will be people who would just be terrified to pitch you know ideas to well, I think though, I think though, when you work with actors, if you're a director, you have to uh, you have to understand how to speak to actors, and I think it really makes your work easier. If you go sit down with an actor and you speak their language, uh, you don't feel so stupid and intimidated. But if you're going into it as a DP and you you don't understand character motivations and stuff like that, and certain words you want to use with actors that'll help them, um, then you, I think you could probably um, put yourself in the mindset that um, you really don't you're you're in out of uh, under your what are you over your head over your head which i think is the case you really should read up on how to talk to actors you know how to you know how to communicate in in the language that they speak so that you can get them to to answer their questions that they're going or give them information that they need so they can do their job correctly so i think um having done that worked with actors read a lot about um acting having read um you know books by uh checkoff and stuff like that about acting theory um then when i finally worked my way up to working with these professional actors it was really just a natural progression of that um i am i'm very jealous yeah fortunately i live in la there's probably like certain parts of england where it's you know the way to find an actor is just throw a rock 
And um, it just, I made two features with just, you put out a call and then people just line up to be in your film. And, uh, you know, they're just happy to do it for a free lunch and the credit really, they just want to build a reel. And so that's important too. And you, you know, you definitely respect them and all that. Um, but, you know, finding good talent is one thing. And then when you find the good talent, being able to respect that, you know, there's a story that Brando would, when he was first working with, you know, when he was younger, he worked with a director for the first time, he would kind of give a couple different performances. He would give the one that he really intended. And then he would just kind of, you know, give a phoned in performance that he didn't really care about. And if the director couldn't tell the difference, then he knew for the rest of that feature, he wouldn't bother. You know, he just wouldn't give the performance if the director isn't able to really perceive the difference. Um, so the director has to understand, you know, when the character, when the actor is really capable of performing the, to their best and um, give them those motivators and cues and help to get to their best. Um, but if the director just doesn't isn't looking for it and doesn't know how to do it, doesn't speak to actors correctly, then, you know, the actor's just not going to do it and things going to fall apart. So um, I think it helps um, directors to really invest some time and money into really understanding, speak to actors, read books about acting. Um, because, I mean, what is a film without, you know, good acting is basically really pretty images. And, and you know, those are a dime a dozen. People just don't care about those movies. So when you're working on set, what's your creative process like to break something down and to get the best out of a scene? Uh, well, you know, ideally what I have pre-visualized the scene. And there's been cases where um, there was a film I made once where I basically it was one of those 72 hour film festivals. So I spent an entire I was at work. I spent the entire day writing and rewriting because I just needed to incorporate, you know, the time title and the item and the line you had to get all those things in there which yeah. is just annoying um and so but we did i did it i had to keep reworking it i finally did it It was very clever it was the uh the one called the box which i think you said you like the cinematography on that it was a couple years ago um, but then I basically stayed up all night pre-visualizing it in my head, running the whole movie over and over in my head, trying to get all the shots, you know, and then writing it down too. Um, because I had to stay up all night. We had to shoot the next morning. So, but if I, if I have the luxury, I will storyboard it just very crudely. I don't invest usually in anything special. I just want to get my ideas down. And then I'm still running the movie over and over in my head. Um, to figure out if it works. And sometimes you're surprised. You get to set, you think it works, and it doesn't. You get the images, and you sit down with it at you know, the editing bay, and it just doesn't work very well like you thought it did in your head. But if I did all that in advance, I really thought through it, and I thought, what well, will be giving me the best emotional impact here? Then when you get to set, it's actually not that much work. You just kind of capture the images. This is kind of the Hitchcock approach. You just kind of do all the work in advance. Yeah. And then you don't even look, you know, he didn't even look through the lens. He just kind of let other people to capture the images that he said he needed. And and, um, and it's the same for the editing. If you've done all your work in pre and you've you trust you've brought on good actors and you trust them to do their job. And if you have you have the luxury of having a crew and you do the same thing with them, um, then you sit down in your editing bay. It's easy. You just assemble all the work, to, you know, you put it all together you know, the way you had pre-visualized it. And it all is quite simple. So um, the one exception is that being on set extremely physically demanding most of the time. So it does break you. It'll break your spine. And you're always exhausted. I am, you know, 12 hour a day standing on my feet, uh, focusing, you know, with maybe five minutes to eat. That's usually how these these days go. Um, so it's not a fun process of actually um, going on set. Um, it's sort of like, you know, I don't know, it's just it's, it's gruesome. It's hard work to, to be a filmmaker. Um, but but the payoff is when you sit down with it, you've got all the footage you need. You've got you know, great performances. You've captured clean sound. And it's just a breeze sitting down, putting all the images together and creating, um, you know, tightening it up. And you'll see different things, you know, that you didn't expect, expect when you were shooting it or preparing. 
Um, but the post-production actually is the easiest part, I'd say, of the process. Um, what's the, the biggest lesson that you've learned on set? Well, you do need to have a backup plan because things just never work. I mean, you just show up on set and something's going to get screwed up. So you always kind of want to be ready with a plan B um, and just think quick on your feet. Because if you let a problem drag you down, you sit there and you think about it for hours, um, you're just not going to get all the stuff you need. Um, so I think just, just sort of being prepared with a plan B and being willing to um, give up your plan A if it looks like it's just not working out. Just kind of give it up. Try it. Try it. It doesn't work. Just kind of abandon that. Move on to plan B and maybe come back to it later on. But um, I think what happens is um, maybe I've never been on professional sets, but I think what happens is people just kind of get bogged down trying to get that perfect image or that perfect performance. And, some, you know, I, some directors are really into doing 80 takes. Um, but sometimes, you know, the first take is perfect. And sometimes, you know, that, that that lens flare that you accidentally got actually works really nicely. And, you know, just sometimes, you know, there was a story also from Lucas when he did American Graffiti. And there was that scene where they go in and get the guy the beer. I think it, it was a long time. But don't they go in and get Richard Dreyfus a beer at a convenience store or something? And they come out. Yeah. And they come out. I think it was him or somebody. And they throw the beer to him. And Dreyfus kind of like stumbles and he like drops it. And he catches it. And Lucas kept that take. That wasn't in the script, but he was like, you're not going to get any better than that. This is genuine. This is so sometimes you have to look for those mistakes, those genuine moments, because that's really what resonates with people. They want to see, you know, human beings on the screen most of the time. Um, so so be open to look for those mistakes. You're not trying to make a perfect masterpiece every time. You, sometimes you want to see those little issues, those errors that can work in your favor. So, you know, uh, open up your sieve and let that stuff in. Don't filter it out. Can you think of any examples specifically that you thought this is the worst? thing that's happened how am i ever going to fix this and, and how did you fix it i get so close to the material sometimes i just don't know we have a short film we had a horror house was an anthology of short films and um there's one segment in the middle of it called um uh what was it called <laughs> it's, it's the one where the guy um oh hot stuff he goes to a bar picks up a girl kicks her out the next morning and she happens to be a witch. And so she puts a curse on him and he starts heating up as the short goes on. So he's getting hotter and hotter. And eventually he just kind of ignites. Um, and uh, it just came across as a series of gags to me when I was watching it in the first edit. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. This doesn't really flow. And I, we showed it, you know, for a screening and it was everybody's favorite short for some reason. So, you know, just things that sometimes you think is a total disaster. Um, sometimes it works for people for some reason. So I just don't really, I try not to judge the stuff as I'm shooting it or as I'm editing it. I kind of use my instinct as much as I can, but in the end, you just really can't always predict what's going to work or not work for, for the viewer. How do you put up with being on the frugal filmmaker? Because that is just a complete wind up. The, it's, for me, it's one of those things where I'll dip my toe in and I'll like answer 20 posts or comment on 20 things. And then I'm like, that's it. I'm done because it just yeah. becomes more like uh, this or this, this or this. Should I use this? Yeah. And it just like yeah. I when I first started with that group, I loved it. It was great. I think it was just yeah. under 10,000 members. There was loads of useful information on there, but now it feels just like a soap opera. It's just everything gets repeated all the time. Um, I know, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I've just kind of, uh, same thing. I was there for you know, way back at the beginning when it was uh, just a few people and they were just posting really interesting homemade contraptions that seemed to work and here's how you can build this. And that was the gist of it. And it was really great. And there were, 
were a few posts about gear and, you know, whatever. But most of it was really kind of like how to how to make movies. And then, you know, I just kind of like got out of it after a while. I just I look in every so often. But, you know, I'm just totally tuning out any gear questions. There's just stuff you can just find on Google. Um, but once in a while, people do ask some interesting questions and the answers are some, you know, some people have really interesting uh, perspectives. So I still get a lot out of it uh, on occasion. But you really have to be picky and uh, just not get bogged down in all the I mean, the life isn't black and white and there isn't a single answer. And sometimes yeah. you just need to, you know, go and buy something and work with it, see what happens, you mm -hmm. know. And if you can afford the best camera, get the best camera. But if you can afford an, uh, an iPhone, then just use your iPhone. You know, it doesn't really matter in the end. Most people would rather just kind of keyboard jockey than actually go out every weekend and make films, which is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> you know, I do think there's two types of people in that group. There's the people who just want to hoard gear and that's all they care about. That's, you know, they'll happy to go to like gear meetups and talk about lenses and then there's the others that just want to make films yeah you'd really hope that you know there'd, there'd be like we're talking about that could be posts about hey how do i talk to an actor i had this problem with an actor how do i deal with this how do i motivate them or you know here's some here's a question i have on uh, set design or how do i get the sound of this mm -hmm. you know there, but there's no it's like gear 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 you know like but you look an entire movie and how much of that actual movie is the kind of camera they used and even when they talk about the camera they're disregarding the the fact that probably the lens that they're using is more expensive than the camera. <laughs> so um, it's like, what are we talking about here? Who cares? I mean, I, I watched some really fantastic looking stuff, but it's edited poorly. So how come you, well, we just get some advice on how to tighten up your film and, and make it flow, you know, better? Who cares? You got the great images, but you can't just rely on a great camera to make a great film because people see through that. You know, there was a film I made um, for the 50, 50 Kisses competition by Chris Jones, who did the Gorillaz filmmaker handbook um he put this competition on where you had to incorporate valentine's day and you had to have a kiss in there so, right so everybody wrote scripts they took the 50 scripts and then a bunch of filmmakers got you know f figured out which script they wanted to make and they made it and then they compiled all these these uh fil short films into a film called 50 kisses and um some of the submissions were fantastic they were shot on really high-end cameras you could tell they were done with uh, gimbals and pro actors, you know, and all that stuff. And you're looking and the color grading is amazing. Our film, which was shot on a T3i in my bathroom, one best film. <laughs> it was this little piece of crap camera. And I sat in my bathtub shooting the actor, my wife and the other actor. And it, I look at my film and go, this really looks like crap. Can I say crap? Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, I, I mean, it just doesn't have the image quality. It's grainy and it just doesn't look like all these other films. And yet, because the story was so good and the acting was good and um, it was edited well, you know, I put a lot of heart into it and it meant something to me as a film. The, the story, you know, the actor's script meant something to me personally. Um, we put everything into it and you can just tell. So even if you technically don't have a great product, mm -hmm. but the rest of it is there, 99% is there. That's what people really are hungry for. So um, forget about the camera for a bit. Just make sure you've tightened up all the other aspects of your filmmaking. You know, you, you, you edit properly. You know how to talk to actors. You have respect for good sound. You know, just get all that stuff in place, too. And then, you know, the, the, the type of camera can just basically be icing on the cake. You mentioned gimbals. If they're used correctly, they look great. But you shouldn't be able to tell it's on a gimbal. You know, you should just it shouldn't yeah. take you out the um, movie. Same for the drone shots. You know, I've seen some oh, yeah. just well-placed, well-placed drone shot. Don't expect it. It's there. It's perfect. I was watching Luther last night and they did that. Um 
there was one shot of a car driving to a warehouse and it's just this, they've never used, this is season two, they never used a drone shot that I can remember. And then they just put this one drone shot following the car and it was perfect for that scene, for the, that episode. And they never used it again. So I think if you just have some, some item that you want, you know, tool, just use it when it's right and that's it. Don't get obsessed with it. Don't, don't rub it, rub the viewer's face in it. You know, it's, yeah. that's not the intention of having these tools. I think part of it with the gimbal is, um, they take that long to balance. The director just goes, right, we'll just keep it on the gimbal and that's all we're going to use. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's probably practical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's overused. I've used, I think, one shot on a gimbal just because we happen to have it. And I tried, I was also in that one with the box and, um, and I wanted to have a reason why I was using it. So I just wa- I had the DP walk around the actors around and around because the conversation was going in circles and oh, you were I supposed to get nauseous. What, what was that <laughs> short called? Uh, that was called the box. Is that um, the, I've got, did you, you shoot go that to, in England, did you? No, but you know everybody I know is British out here, so we just had a bunch of Brits um, shoot that one in Hollywood. Yeah, it was that was great. And you did uh, did you do like a behind the scenes video to it as well? Uh, no, I didn't do that behind the scenes. Uh, it was one. Of, it was that one that for the seventy two hours, and I was I just I just swore to myself I'd never do it again. It just killed me. Just <laughs> writing, producing, and 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 doing posts in a weekend for something that involved was just crazy. Um, and that was the time where I was kind of watching a lot of uh, Bergman. So I was trying to incorporate some of his imagery and symbolism, uh, visual okay. symbolism, and, and yeah, and sh- silhouettes and all that, and shadows. And oh, God, that just killed me. I, I think the results were good, although I submitted something like 70 film festivals and all of them turned it down. So oh, I guess really? you and I are the only people that liked it. Well, I thought Plus it was the great. Actors, um, Thanks. Yeah. And that was a 72-hour film festival. Yeah, the last one we did called Being Mum, that was, uh, and that just went online at the um, 20, it was a 48, if you go to 48filmproject.com, their latest film, Being Mum is there, that stars my one-year-old, Oliver. Oh. Um, that was that was less work for some reason, uh, mainly because it was just me, my wife, and a friend, and our little one-year-old. Um, it wasn't a bunch of actors and locations uh, and special effects and stuff. Um, if it's just, you know, a very limited location, it doesn't kill you as much, although it still was really hard. But this 72-hour one was just just torture for me. Just tell people again what your latest film's called and, and when they're likely to be able to see it. Yeah, Abruptio is uh, a film that is, instead of actors, has lifelike puppets. And we are, you know, we have the entire cast of uh, well-known actors doing the voices. We've already done that. So now we're in production, just gradually getting the puppets fabricated and shooting a little bit at a time. So I don't have a release date because it just takes so much time, this whole process of getting puppets fabricated and then going out and shooting the scenes. So I can't promise when it'll be done, but, you know, we're just gradually working on it. It's never been done before. You know, you've seen The Dark Crystal and uh, what was it, like Never Ending Story. You know, there's movies that are basically sci-fi. And they put in, you know, some puppet character, Yoda. Um, there's a character that maybe is a, a puppet, but it's never been like a drama or horror film that's acted entirely by lifelike puppets in realistic situations. So that's what I wanted to do. And everyone thinks it's a great idea, but, you know, it's such a weird idea. Um, people don't really get what they mean, what I mean by when I say puppets. But just imagine you're looking at a person, but it's not a person. It's a, like a life cast, sort of a little bit off, doesn't quite look normal. It's a little exaggerated in certain, certain features. 
So um, it's almost nightmarish watching these puppet heads interact with each other. Um, but I, I've shot it in a way that I don't want people to think about puppets. I've shot it as a horror film, and I've lit it that way, and I've shot, you know, tried to make it as much like a regular old film. And yet there's just weird-looking latex puppets talking to each other and blinking. And it, it's really unsettling when you watch the scenes. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Evan, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and uh, I appreciate your time. Oh, thanks a lot. Good talking to you. 